0: You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, a show where we cover the last 7-10 days in the world of Apple news, reviews, rumors, roundup, gossip, tech, and, well, basically, anything else that catches our eye. This is the Essential Apple Podcast. Yes, hello everyone. Apologies for my absence last week. The world basically got better of me. Uh, And I'm back this week and then I'm off for two weeks. Very, very long stories that I shan't bore you with, but oh, I'm looking forward to a bit of a break. So we've got a very special interview coming up now. We've Simon and I have been looking forward to this interview for quite a while, but before we introduce who it is, Simon, how are you doing on this fair
2: day? Good work on the podcast last week, sir. Thank you, and thank you, Bob, for coming on and uh, bailing me out. Um, I'm all right. Apart from my knee has flared up and I am in a lot of pain and I can barely walk. But other than that, you know, grit your teeth and carry on
1: the very British way of doing it I, had a, I went out cycling on the Saturday uh, and ended up with a mild dose of hypothermia so I can share a bit of pain but enough about us As I've said, we have a very special guest. Now, on this show, we've had people like Dougie come on and talk about privacy and how to protect yourself. Simon's had a look around for email clients. I've started taking the very faint steps into the world of VPN because I'm becoming very paranoid at work about how they're watching me. So what better guest to have on our show than Dr. Andy Yen of none other than Proton Technologies on the podcast today, live Obviously, it won't be live because by the time you listen to this from Geneva, Dr. Andy Yen, how are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing fine. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much. No, we were supposed to have you on the show last week, but there was a bit of a there was a bit of a crisis in the works, wasn't there? Tell us a little bit about um yeah, about what happened last week.
3: Well, you know, it wasn't just last week. In fact, uh, we've had a very interesting, let's say, you know, um, the whole every day of the uh, last week. Uh, the situation that we hit uh, the last time we wanted to speak actually was that the Turkish government uh, had issued an order uh, to block uh, Proton mail and also Proton VPN uh, across the entire country. Uh, so, you know, given the fact that we have probably hundreds of thousands of users uh, in Turkey, uh, this was quite a situation on our hands. Um, and uh, it's one that we're still dealing with. Um, and then, of course, immediately after that, uh, it came out uh, over the weekend uh, that some White House staffers of the Trump administration administration uh we're using Proton mail uh, you know uh, and that was also an interesting you know incident uh so yeah we've just had a kind of a crazy uh past week.
1: When you said White House staffer, the first thing that came into my head was Hillary Clinton. She's <laughs> not in the White House. <laughs> I know, but it just sort of reminds you of like, oh, no, we've got these I, emails. I did
2: read that story. I did read that story um, because, obviously, uh, Proton uh, posted it. And I also posted a comment on, on Twitter about it. And... Um, of Course, what they said is everybody's free to use proton mail because, by its very nature of being secure and encrypted, you know, it's not really any of proton mail's business who uses it or what they do with it. And the fact that I suppose it's, it's like the argument for
1: guns, then, isn't it? It's not the gun that kills people, it's the people that have the no, trigger. I
2: don't, I don't think so. I think the point there is whether or not if somebody was using proton mail in the White House. To do things which they're not supposed to be doing, then that's a matter for the administration to deal with. It's not Proton Mail's fault, is it?
1: Well, I suppose that's a very good point. But before we go into all the depths of that, just to carry on that thing. Um, Andy, what was what was the genesis behind the idea of Proton? Well, obviously Proton Mail and then the other associated technologies. What what was the inception point and in why you wanted to do it?
3: Yeah, for us, it was really all about data and you know, data online. Uh, if you look, for example, at uh, you know, the current digital situation where we have all of our information uh, online, either in social media um, or in big companies like Google, Uh, It's actually quite troubling uh, to, you know, have all of our digital data out of our control um, on the internet and pretty much ready to be exploited. Um, I think everybody at this point has, you know, heard the story uh, about, uh, you know, Facebook, right, in uh, the company called uh, Cambridge Analytica. uh, And... Oh right. yes,
1: that's blown up big. Yeah, this you know, week.
3: this is a really, really um, big issue, right? And uh, and of course, you know, uh, Facebook is claiming that this is a data breach. Well, you know, it's not. It's not a data breach, right? It's actually their business model. So in a sense, it's a much worse than uh, you know data breach. Uh, and the realization that we came to, you know, back in 2013, was that if your core business uh, is actually building a massive surveillance system, uh, the data is eventually going to be misused, and whether it's uh, breached, it's hacked, it's misappropriated, or it's sold, um, that's actually not relevant. Uh, the problem is, you know, having all this data and collecting this data. Uh, so we kind of built PhotonMail. Um, as an alternative against that business model uh, to find a way to, you know, provide online services uh, without counting on exploiting data and serving advertisements. And that was really the philosophy behind the company. uh, And that's something that we've stuck to uh, since then.
1: Just use us as their way of earning money. And the whole Facebook thing to say they were hacked. I mean, yeah, they're big, but seriously, nobody noticed a data breach of 50 million people. I mean, the movie studios like Sony... You could give a little bit of credibility to, yep, they were hacked because they're not in the game of being on the internet in so much as Facebook is. But those that fifty million, and it is worrying now because the amount of times that you know I've, I'm on Have I Been and one of my key key passwords came up on a list. Unfortunately, it didn't show me what service it was uh, that my email address and my password were linked to. But it's like, oh, yep, here we go. See, it's almost just like you're waiting to be hacked now. And that's why I've switched over to ProtonMail, because even if something was to happen, I know that my emails are encrypted, which I find absolutely fascinating. So you've had this idea for ProtonMail. Tell us a little bit how you got started then, the engineering involved, and how you sort of went out there and launched a product uh, and got people to start using
3: it. Well, I think uh, like a lot of, you know, good projects out there, it was completely on accident. Um, We had the idea and the concept. Um, We were not really computer scientists. We were actually physicists uh, working at CERN, Uh, but we decided to build it anyways. Um, After we built it, uh, we didn't really know who was going to use it. Uh, So we just put it online to see what would happen. And already on the first day, we got something like, you know, 10,000 people signing up. Um, And then at that point, it just kind of grew from there. Uh, So it was really in many ways, an accident. Um, you know, we built something that solved a problem that uh, we had. And it turns out millions of people around the world uh, also had this problem and wanted a solution. So in the end, that's kind of how we went from, you know, idea to uh, now a fully functioning uh, company and uh, product.
1: And just give us an idea of the, the size of Proton. I suppose you'd call them Proton technologists now. How many people sort of work within the organization? And are they all working locally with you or are they sort of all telecommuter type people?
3: Well, we have uh, people based both in our offices. Uh, the headquarters is in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, and we also have a lot of people who work remotely. Uh, so the total headcount of the company uh, is about 50 employees now.
1: And when I pardon my lack of research on this. So when did the company start up? Then? Cause that seems like quite a sizable number for, for the platform that you're on at the moment.
3: Yeah, the company really began, you know, operating uh, in the summer of 2014. uh, And, you know, we've obviously seen a lot of growth since then. uh, And, you know, the user base is growing today uh, pretty much at an exponential rate. uh, And as a result, uh, so does the team, uh, because otherwise you have to keep up. Yeah,
2: well, I have to say... um... I can't. I can't remember, Mark, when I first came across proton. Got to be a couple of years ago, I reckon. Don't you think? Because I'm pretty sure I mentioned them some time ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, Andy, it's thanks to Simon that uh, you know I've basically. It's one of those things where you go out and you look for uh, an email account, and you know there's Google, but I'm trying. I'm I'm so entrenched in Google now. It's really hard for me to pull away. And of course, you've got all these sites that do you know, the side on with Google, and so. I think you're actually the first time I've ever paid for an email service. And I will go on the record here to say, yep, I do use Pro on Mail, uh, and we've not paid Andy, or we're not getting anything coming on. We just wanted to have a good old chat about it. So well, thanks, yeah. for, thanks for making something awesome. Well, yeah. it
3: is, isn't it? Absolutely. because I- I, Actually, I, if I, if I can come in real quick. Um, I want to push back on that a little bit. Uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, paying for ProtonMail was the first time you paid for email. Um, I would argue that that's not true. Uh, you know, you were definitely paying for Gmail. Uh, you were just paying for the data and your privacy and you know your sensitive secrets. So it wasn't like you had a free lunch. Uh, you definitely were paying, uh, except you know you happened to be the product.
1: <laughs> Fair play, sir. Fair plays. You are entirely, entirely yes, right.
2: Well, I was going to say, <laughs> as you know, Mark, when I divorced myself from uh from the google services i told you that i'd been using google since uh the invitation days and that i went in with my eyes open and i understood that i was getting that service in exchange for um you know a certain amount of my data but over time i'd become more and more uneasy because i felt the amount of data that they were slurping up had to become you know exponentially larger and therefore I wanted to move away from Google which is why I now use obviously uh, the Apple iCloud and uh, Proton and of course thanks to uh, thanks to Dougie I also use sudo mail and 33mail.com who are both excellent uh, masking services but uh, Proton but you know Proton Mail. I don't pay for Proton Mail because I don't actually um, between Apple and Proton Mail, I don't have enough messages to need to uh, take the paid level although I am I'm considering it because I'd like to be able to use the bridge. Do you use the bridge? Do you use the bridge, uh, Mark? I
1: don't, but it, funnily enough, it's... Um... This sort of leads me into a, one of my first questions because I hope you don't mind. Well, I say I hope you don't mind, but I've reached out onto that their internet uh, and I've asked a couple of people uh, what some questions they've had. So, can you just tell us a little bit about what makes Proton Mail so secure? Uh, obviously, you're not Google and you're not data slurping, but tell us a little bit more about the technology behind it that make it um, make it what it is. Because, for example, when I first set up Proton Mail. Being an absolute noob to what was going on in the world, it went off and wanted to create a random key. So what's all that about?
3: Yes, so the key difference with ProtonMail is that it's actually an encrypted email service. And the way that we do the encryption is quite different from any other provider out there. Uh, ProtonMail uses what is known as end-to-end encryption. Uh, And what is different about end-to-end encryption is, in fact, we encrypt all your data uh, before it even leaves your device. Uh, And that means that All the messages that we store on our server are encrypted in a way that we cannot actually decrypt them. Uh, So let's say even if we decided one day you know we're gonna start um, an ad company and start data mining, um, we in fact couldn't do that because technically it's not actually possible for us to decrypt any of the messages that we store for users. Uh, So this is the you know key um, innovation Uh, and it's of course you know great for privacy but it's also really good for security because as we've seen with you know Sony and also basically with the Yahoo Uh, you know email breaches are something that that do happen you know services do get hacked Um, and you know I would say for all services it's just a matter of time before you get hacked Uh, and because we use end-to-end encryption Mm -hmm. this actually gives us a very very strong protection against hacks because if an attacker were to breach into our systems uh, well all the emails are encrypted Uh, we can't read them so an attacker can actually steal from us uh, something that we ourselves don't have Uh, and that's actually the key difference uh, with ProtonMail and you know it's considered to be more secure than traditional email. Plans.
1: Right, so this leads me on to a question. Uh, this is from uh, a guy called, or person, I should say, called Yumology from the Reddit thread that I started up the other day. Um, I'm just—I I don't fully understand it, so bear with me. I'm just gonna—I'm just gonna read it verbatim, and we'll see where we go from here. So, uh, Proton Mail doesn't let you send mail outside of Proton Mail, but last week you released call, something called Open PGPJS. So I'm really hoping that Open by positioning Open PGPJS is going to allow, allow them to integrate it into their client. Me, part of my lack of knowledge on this, but is the bridge not designed to do just that? Uh, and he replies with, or they reply with, they, uh, these are good questions. I like that you well-researched questions for your guests. Reports from other people are saying that they couldn't get PGP to work with Bridge, but apparently the encryption between a user's machine and the Proton Mail servers does use PGP, which is confusing. So I think it still will allow you to send, re- receive PGP mail outside of Proton Mail.
3: Does that sound a bit about right? Yeah, you know... It's a confusing topic, and uh, I'll try my best to uh, clarify. Um, so, the encryption that ProtonMail uses to protect uh, messages, uh, you know, among ProtonMail users and also from the outside, is based upon PGP. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we're the primary maintainers of the software library OpenPGP.js, uh, which is the most popular library that is used to, you know, uh, do PGP encryption uh, these days. In actually, and, uh,
2: if I just, for the sake of the, uh, for the listeners and and for Mark's Like, PGP is uh, pretty good privacy.
1: Yeah, well, even I know that. I had that back in college when you had to go really around a long ways of generating a key in DOS. Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. So, you know, OpenPGP, Is, uh, you know, in in our library, OpenPDBJS is actually used by an ecosystem of, you know, tens of millions of users around the world. Uh, And by maintaining that library, we're maintaining a very, you know, key part of that uh, ecosystem. Now, uh, right now, uh, at present, uh, ProtonMail. Uh, it does PGP within Proton Mail and for emails that come into Proton Mail, um, but will not get fully interoperable with the you know larger PGP ecosystem. And that's why we pushed out this major update to the OpenPGP.js library uh, last week. Uh, because we're, you know, getting ready uh, to fully integrate ProtonMail to the broader ecosystem, and uh, what that means is when we actually do that, and this is a step that's coming, you know, probably in the next uh, one or two months, um, we'll be able to be compatible with actually any PGP system, you know, anywhere in the world, uh, and you know, this takes advantage of the fully federated, uh, you know, system that is email um, in order to, you know, uh, allow end-to-end encryption uh, between basically any two email accounts in the world. Uh, Regardless of whether or not they're proton or electrons, uh, so it's obviously a very big step for us. One that we have to do very carefully, uh, but it is the direction that we're going in. Uh, and at this point, you know, fingers crossed, we should be there before summer. So this this
1: really does sound like, pardon, upon a bridge to the next level.
3: Yeah, it's not, you know, the same thing as the bridge, but it is taking the step up to the next level. Yeah. Um and it is taking us to a place where, you know, you can realistically imagine, uh, you know, end-to-end for email, uh, taking over a lot more of the overall, you know, email communication today.
1: I mean, and even I've been able to use it and I've got to say yeah, it. I will. I'll be completely honest. There's some small elements about the UI that make me uh, a little bit wincy, But overall, it's it's a small price to pay to go. All this data is mine. I'm not being mined. I'm not being looked at. If I have an email about a car battery, I'm not going to see all the other Google adverts about car batteries. Um, there's So... With you mentioned it, I know we are darting around the topics a little bit, but obviously as we're on the, the subjects of security, I've got another question here from the sensible people podcast. Uh, sorry, the sensible people podcast, and their questions go: I'd be curious as to what the course of action is to deal with certain governments blocking access to ProtonMail.
3: Yeah, this is a very good question. It's very relevant because we just had a situation with Turkey. Um, You know, there's a combination of strategies, right? Um, At the end of the day, it's technically not difficult to block access to a website. Uh, And if your website is blocked, there's not a whole lot that you can actually do from a technical standpoint to you know kind of circumvent uh, that block. Uh, So there's really two or three different approaches that you can take. Um, One is you make it into a PR battle. Uh, you, know, you make it look bad. You create a very big issue over it, um, and sometimes that's you know quite effective uh, at getting you know blocks overturned. Uh, we had an incident with PayPal, you know, uh, three years ago, where that was actually how it was it was resolved. You know, the bad PR was too bad for them to handle, and we got unblocked by PayPal. Uh, another way to do it is you know from the uh, you know legal framework. Uh, so you can sometimes actually you know sue governments um, or you know bring cases to international arbitration um, if they're blocking you because. If a government is blocking uh, your business from operating uh, in their country, uh, sometimes that's actually a, a free trade agreement violation. Uh, then the third approach is what I call, you know, the um, scale approach. Which is, if you have so many users in a country, uh, some of them who work in government or some of them who are to government or working for the major ISPs, um, you've actually hit a critical mass where it's not possible to block you because it would trigger so many complaints uh, that they have no choice but to unblock you. Uh, And, you know, we we were today anyways, unblocked uh, in Turkey. And we think that might have been what happened. (laughs) What? I thought that there is the one question I want to
1: ask is how big is your legal team? Cause it sounds like you've gone from working at certain becoming a load of programmers. and now you suddenly you're uh, almost just as much resources have to go into fighting for the freedom for people to be able to keep their own data as it does as, as basic programming.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, we definitely have on staff now, you know, a couple of people dedicated just to the legal and the advocacy you know, side um, because there's obviously the technical battle that we're fighting, um, but at the same time, there's also the educational one, which is you have to educate users on the risks out there to make them aware of what are some of these issues that we're facing today. Um, And at the same time, um, it's not just users that educate, it's also the government, the regulators, and the law enforcement that also need to be educated. Uh, A lot of companies like us in the past, uh, they had a very confrontational approach, which was they were constantly fighting law enforcement, fighting governments, uh, and it it was very, very, it's a very abrasive and very confrontational approach, uh, and actually that approach doesn't work because no matter what you try to do, uh, you're never gonna you know beat the government. Uh, you can't operate you know outside of government jurisdiction because no matter where you go, unless you're in a boat in, in the middle of the ocean, uh, you have some set of laws and rules. You must adhere to. Uh, so what is very important uh, for us and I think for the industry as a whole is instead of fighting regulators, uh, you have to talk to them because they're also people. Um, they're rational. They you know uh, most of them are actually quite intelligent. Uh, and if you explain to them, you know, the point of encryption uh and why, for example, backdoors don't work, or you can't ban encryption, Um, over time, this message actually gets across. Uh, And we've seen now through our communication and advocacy and legal efforts, uh, that we are moving the needle. uh, And the regulators and law enforcement and governments that we deal with today, um, even compared to three years ago, um, are a lot more sophisticated. Uh, and it's because they've, you know, had these conversations with us and we've been able to talk with them about this. Uh, and I think that's a key thing that you have to do, which is why while we work on the technology, uh, we also fully staff the legal division as well.
1: And I suppose it, it like you said, education, uh, is quite key as, as you've, as you've mentioned out. So again, the, uh, the follow-up question sort of works well with this again from the sensible people podcast. Thank you very much for coming into our Reddit. Chat uh, and let uh, dropping in some questions for us. What are some of the biggest challenges that Proton Mail is going to face over the next ten years?
3: I think it's a number of uh, challenges. Uh, The immediate challenge is uh, scaling, right? Uh, When you're having, you know, very, very high growth rates, uh, you need to quickly scale up your teams, your infrastructure, your management, the whole organization. Uh, and, you know, this is a unique challenge uh, that not many people have experience in solving. Um, and it's something that we need to master, you know, as, as a company. Uh, so that's obviously the near-term challenge. Um, longer term, uh, you know, we also have to deal with kind of changing attitudes about privacy and, you know, kind of some of the entrenched issues that we see, right? So um, there's obviously always going to be governments, uh, like term. Turkey, uh, like China, Russia, Iran, um, which you know do not support our mission, which is trying to make the internet more free, more open, and protecting things like freedom of speech, and ultimately a democracy. Uh, so we are going to come into conflict uh, more and more with major governments uh, as we get larger, and these conflicts you know, manifest themselves in not just you know, um, blocks and embargoes, but um, also many times uh, lawsuits uh, and cyber attacks. Uh, so this is something that we just have to be prepared for you know, as we enter the new era with encryption and Protonote in particular, you know, going more and more uh, into the mainstream. Uh, And then the uh, third thing, uh, is really, you know, um, attitudes. So if you look, for example, at uh, many you know um, young teenagers today, uh, the ones who are between, let's say, 13 and 18 years old, uh, they're effectively being trained uh, primarily by Facebook and Instagram and social media uh, to share everything online. Uh, so the end result of this is that attitudes about privacy, uh, especially in the younger, younger generation, uh, is quite different from, say, people like, you know, you and I. Uh, and... This is where education is very important because we need to work hard to reach that younger audience um, as early as possible and instill in them, you know, the values and the importance of privacy uh, before they lose that. Uh, and this is why I think specifically, you know, the Facebook story that's being out in media today um, and issues like this, which are bringing privacy rights to the forefront, um, are extremely useful uh, for this fight. Uh, but it is a challenge that uh, you know we have to overcome. <laughs>
1: On the on the whole Facebook thing, I think Karl Madden from the Mac and Four podcast said, "Do we have a right to expect privacy, or are we now basically in this term of being on the internet? If you want privacy, then pretty much you're going to have to pay for it." Because I've started taking this more and more seriously, just because I've become incredibly paranoid in work at the moment. Um, so so I, I start using a VPN, but we'll move on to Proton VPN very shortly. Do you think now that we're in the, as you said, the generation that's coming up is so used to throwing out their life into the public eye that we're just being old? We're just being the, the last the crusty people?
2: No, I don't. I don't. I don't think we are, Mark, because actually... I think there's a there's a certain generation, possibly possibly older than the millennials or the Gen Zs or whatever they're called but, um, that that Andy is talking about, and uh, so younger than us and older than the millennials. I don't know what wh- where they'd fall. Um, let's say probably people in their twenties, late twenties, maybe. They are the people who have probably grown up with the internet as it blossomed and exploded, um, and They are the people who have possibly shared, you know, a large amount of their teenage years online, unprotected, Um, and they are the people who are going to find their, you know, their drunken teenage exploits following them, well, let's face it, to the grave. Um, People like you and me and Andy and probably a lot of our listeners, being a bit older, were probably a bit more wary even from the start. Um, I mean, there was a strange phenomenon in that when i started on the internet it was still considered a bit geeky a bit nerdy and a bit specialist and everybody used a pseudonym nobody used their real name everybody used a pseudonym and then as the internet went mainstream this whole kind of wanting to use your real name everywhere and for everything took off and i think you'll find that the, that the the generation that uh andy's talking about you know the sort of 13 to 18 year olds They have learned that it's not necessarily a good idea to share everything um, because they've seen their older siblings or possibly their uncles or whatever caught in that crossfire. So I think you might find that the 13 to 18 year olds are a lot more canny
3: about the Internet than probably some people in their 20s and 30s. Yes. So yeah, actually, I completely agree with that. uh, Because, you know, it is true that behaviors around online privacy um, are changing. uh, But the other side of this coin is also awareness. Uh, so if you look at what is the most popular social network among the you know young um, you know demographic, uh, actually it's Snapchat, right? And the main draw there is that you know things disappear; they don't you know last forever. I mean, I mean they actually do, but you know the advertising that they actually go away, right? Um, so you know uh, you do see that among the young generation, uh, in fact, they are in many ways uh, much more aware uh, than say the older folks about what is going on. You know, they understand uh, you know how these social media networks are working. Uh, they you know, intuitively know it better than a lot of the older generation uh and they're already taking steps uh you know to try to control uh, and you know to to uh restrict what of the information actually goes out there uh and part of that is in fact you know going from platforms like uh, facebook and going to things like the snapchat um or instagram where you know they are more selective with what they share uh, and you know this is why i think um while it looks bad that social media is changing you know, attitudes about privacy. Uh, it's really not so bad because at the same time, you know, we see a lot of promise in the young generation in terms of their understanding, uh, and we think that's a positive sign, you know, not just for, for what we do, uh, but for society as a whole.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, I do, I do think it. It, it seems i sometimes like to describe the the internet in in the terms of the wild west in the in a way i was on the first wagon train out and so when i arrived it was a sparsely populated area full of people who were um pioneers keen to explore and then you've got the second wave and that was when the Wild West really happened when everybody turned up and it was a mad scramble for anything and everything is possible and nothing you know there's no law there's no order there's no nothing and then over time the railroads come along and the masses start to arrive and they won't put up with it they want sheriffs and sidewalks and railway stations and libraries and so everything starts to calm down again so yeah I'm very much sure that my you know my daughter particularly, you know, Cutie Mellon, Ruth, she is very internet savvy, certainly more internet savvy than some people I know in their late 20s who appear to have thrown all caution to the winds <laughs> and basically bared all on Facebook in metaphorical, if not actual physical terms. So, yeah, I, I and it's like the very fact that my daughter tends to go by the name Cutie Mellon. You know, there's been a definite return to the use of nom de internet.
1: Well, for me, that's all been part of marketing and branding, isn't it? Because people, you know, my ICQ name was two nine three four oh one six, and it's very much now. It's like me as a person marketing ourselves, but now we, I think maybe you know, we like all these pseudonyms and everything to keep us um, to keep us private. Um, Andy, just I mean, I, I'm going to guess that because you were in so much into your data privacy you're not really going to have any much stats on the sort of type of user or the knowledge level of user but is it would you imagine it's like a broad spread you've got people who are a little bit technically inclined like myself and a mix of the people that will say well there's an open pgp.js library have you got any sort of insights into your
3: demographic at all well, you know, as a privacy company, we actually do not uh, carefully track uh, or do any sort of, you know, our monitoring uh, to understand this information. Uh, we have you know, some large scale um, overview statistics of kind of where users are coming from. Um, but the sense that we get from, you know, responding to users, talking to users, interacting with them is that, you know, predominantly we have a very, very uh, you know young uh, group of users. Uh, I would say most of them are probably, you know, um, under the age of you know, 40. Um, um, they're mostly professionals. They're uh, you know most more tech savvy. Um, I would say you know they're kind of more sophisticated, right? Because you have to get to some level of sophistication uh, before encryption, privacy, and security uh, become things that you really you know, worry about.
2: I think that's probably true. I I suspect. And then of course from there, what you need is if you want these people to be you know disseminating this to their friends and their family and their associate, um, uh, which is very much what what we've tried to do. I think you know on this podcast since I discovered uh proton mail and proton vpn i'm very big on promoting services that i think are worthy and worthwhile and i know for a fact that several of our listeners have have migrated to proton mail and or proton vpn you know after researching it after we talked about it on the podcast and i know that our slack room associate andy J, who's a digital forensic expert he's you know very much touted your services very good and that's a in <laughs> know that in our that in our circle is a very high recommendation indeed, isn't
1: it yeah i mean he he specializes in recovering data off of hard drives to a forensic level, so that's kind of like a, a, a praise from i suppose almost a in some ways, the sort of people that you're trying to fight. Now, Simon did touch on it. Now, Proton Mail uh, is one part of your company, but you've you've got Proton VPN. So, tell us a little bit about uh, Proton VPN and what makes that sp- so special. Uh, well, I don't want to pitch it against that other company that's just bought out of McAfee, but what makes your version of Proton Mail uh, so good? Sorry, Proton VPN, I should say.
3: Well, you know, uh, the VPN space um, is a very big space, right? There's literally hundreds of providers out there. Um, they, you know, um, have different levels of, of, of reputation. Um, generally, you don't know who runs them. Um, and the issue in the VPN space really is that there's a massive credibility gap in that, you know, some free VPNs have been taught to be actually selling user data uh, to advertisers. Uh, some of them just contain malware. Um, a lot of them are run-, are run by people that don't know what they're doing, uh, so when we looked at the space, um, you know, it, it didn't look good. Uh, there were just too many uh, providers out there who were either a suspect, um, didn't know what they were doing, um, not properly secured. Uh, so it looked like the marketplace really needed a you know a, a secure, trustworthy option um, with the encryption done right, uh, and that was really the motivation to build something uh, like Photon VPN. Um, we really got into the space uh, because we knew, uh, as I said earlier, um, as we expanded, we would eventually uh, you know get uh, more and more pushback from governments. Uh, we would start getting blocked and banned in different countries, uh, and in fact, having a free VPN tool uh, that was trustworthy out there was really, really important to ensure that ProtonMail could stay you know, accessible in parts of the world that are going to you know, try to ban it. Uh, so that was kind of why you know, it was a natural uh, next step for us, um, because in a way, it's securing access to proton mail, which is securing access to freedom of speech uh, in many parts of the world.
1: And just, um, and like I said, I've just started using um, Proton VPN in work. Uh, and you do hear all these stories on the internet that, oh, you know, I've turned on a VPN and all of a sudden it's slowing down my phone. Now, bearing in mind, I've got an iPhone 6S with a very, very dodgy battery that even if you turn the screen on, it's like a countdown to battery Armageddon. I've not noticed that at all. Uh, But it's just so nice to know that if if I'm in work and I'm using work as a big example, but if I'm out socializing and I'm using a BT hotspot, um, I know that I'm secure. Now, I'm going to ask again another technical question that is completely out of my wheelhouse here. So do forgive me. Now, Andy mentioned that with some VPNs, uh, they can trace what you do via DNS entries. Which I sort of makes sense. Does Proton Mail do any of that? I mean, just tell us a little. Sorry, Proton VPN. Just tell tell us a little bit about what makes your VPN. Uh, so secure as to say, maybe some more populary type ones.
3: Yeah, there's a couple things that are you know quite different, right? Um, one is that we're very careful about the encryption that is uh, used. Uh, so, for example, you know we use ciphers that have perfect forward uh, secrecy. Um, we only use you know um, strong methods for key exchange and you know TLS handshakes. Uh, so, so from the cryptography standpoint, uh, you know a lot of care has been done. You know, to make sure that uh, there are no weaknesses there. Um, the protocols that have been selected are also carefully selected to make sure that they're strong. Um, and also the way that we manage the server. Uh, you know, most VPNs, if you want to compromise a VPN, all you have to do is compromise uh, the server. Uh, so to work around that, we have something called a um, secure core network. Uh, and what this does is, let's say you want to connect you know, to a server in the U.S. Well, you know the U.S. is a country where uh, servers and networks are very easily compromised through court orders. Uh, so, Secure Core would actually, you, you know, route your traffic to the U.S. Uh, first through a country like uh, Switzerland or Iceland uh, with very strong, um, you know, privacy laws. And because of multiple hops and the multiple hops go through infrastructure and networks uh, that uh, we control, uh, this essentially, uh, you know. Um, Makes it so that it's much harder uh, for someone to compromise a network, or compromise a server, and be able to track our users. So you know, it's a combination of these technological advantages, um, and also the fact that you know, um, when you use Proton VPN, uh, you know exactly who is running the service, um, and uh, you know you know for a fact that it's not fraud, it's not malware, and it's not secretly selling your data uh, to your advertisers.
2: I've said this again and again on our show, haven't I, Mark? You know, I VPNs are ten a penny right vpns really are 10 a penny and the one thing you you have to trust if you're going to use a vpn is you have to trust your vpn provider which is why i have being a big proponent of TunnelBear because of their you know, their open security audit standpoint. I don't know how I'm going to feel about them now they've been taken over by a big corporation um, and moved to the US of course rather than being in Canada. And the other the other one I've been a big fan of is and a big proponent of is of course Proton VPN because I say it over and over you know I get ad after ad after ad saying get a lifetime of secure VPN service for only Forty nine dollars by joining this fabulous service, and it's like, yeah, right. That's that's like, it's like some bloke coming up to you on the street and saying. I will sell you a Lamborghini for only fifty pound a week for the rest of your life. It's don't really. I don't trust that. It's just (laughs) not how it works, is it, Andy? You know, you've you've got to have you've got to have faith. You know, your VPN is like your bank. You really have to believe in it. So my my only comment, and I'm I'm I am going to throw one your way, the Proton VPN is excellent i do use it Uh, i use the free service obviously at the moment there's no native mac or ios client is there you have to use openvpn or tunnelblick neither of which are the slickest of softwares to set up when are we likely to see an ios and mac native uh, setup client
3: Yes. So the uh, native uh, Mac client actually is already in beta. Uh, it's uh, in beta available just for uh, paid users right now. Okay. Uh, and the iOS is also under under development. Uh, so, you know, I am pretty sure we will see both by the by the end of this year. That's excellent. That's,
2: that's very good news. I mean, I have, I did write an article um, and put it on the essential Apple, which to help people who were interested in using the free level of the uh, uh, Proton VPN, especially because you know, like most things, if you if you want to test it out, you want to use the free level first, don't you, and prove to yourself that it's that it's worth the money. And um, that's excellent. That is excellent. But I have I have written a piece to help people. But I have to say, neither Tunnelblick nor OpenVPN, are that, let's say, uh, they're, they're not the easiest to set up. You have to be a little bit technical savvy, don't you?
1: It does require you doing. It um in on a Friday night with a can of beer in your hand and a little bit of concentration because even I was able to get it set up. Uh, so if I can achieve it, pretty much anyone oh, yeah. anyone yeah, else it's can. Not,
2: it's not hard, but you it, it's not it's not a one button. You know, it's not the tunnel bear one button setup, is it? That that's all I'm saying.
1: No, and, and that is a pretty high benchmark. So again, so with what's been the challenges of moving from just offering a mail client to a VPN client, how did you find your skills of developing the secure uh, mail system, transferring over to creating a VPN
3: network? Well, it's you know it's a very different uh, industry. Um, there are some things that are similar, but also a lot of things that are completely different. Uh, so there definitely was a very steep learning curve. Um, we were lucky to you know hire some people and have some uh, good partners that we work with uh, in order to figure out you know um, how to learn the ropes as quickly as possible. Uh, but it definitely uh, wasn't easy. Uh, we're still learning even today, um, and I think uh, you know it's come a long way since we launched uh, last year in June. And there's obviously still a lot of work to do, including. On the Mac and the uh, iOS clients. Uh, but like with everything we do, it's always learning. You have to learn you know, the new technologies, the uh, you know um, new challenges. And it's about having the good team in place that can kind of master those challenges and be able to you know, adapt and learn quickly. Awesome. Awesome. Now, we are approaching the
1: hour mark. I know we've only got you booked in for an hour. So we'll, uh, we'll, st- we'll start looking at wrapping things up. But I suppose one thing, because you're in the field of privacy and everything like that, I'd be very interested to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would as well. What is your take on Apple's stance on privacy? What's your, I mean, I suppose, is there a company feeling about it, a company ethos, or is it, or do you just want to discuss your own personal feelings, or in, indeed
3: perhaps both? Well, on in, as far as Apple uh, is concerned. Uh, you know, Apple is not an ad company, uh, so it's not it's not Google, it's not Facebook. Uh, you know, they're in a different business entirely, uh, and they're in a business uh, where trust matters a lot. Uh, so I believe you know, Apple, uh, you know, whether or not they actually care about privacy, you know, deep down inside, we don't know. But even from a business standpoint, um, they're going to put a high focus on it because it's essential for them to you know keep selling products and keep moving products. Uh, so you know, that's the sort of alignment uh, between you know the company and its customers. That you typically want to have, and that's kind of, I would say, a stable arrangement that you know ensures that in the long term, uh, Apple will continue to be supportive of privacy uh, because, you know, to be honest, their business depends on it.
1: As, as I suppose, much much of uh, much is yours. So, and again, again, one of the questions we saw with discussing pre-show. Um, what do you do you have any sort of opinions on touch id and face id do you see more biometric styles of security sort of coming into the home or coming into the business more uh, business area more
3: Well, you know there's pros and cons right uh before you had things like uh, touch id and face id uh the common way of you know, logging onto devices was usually pin codes and pin codes uh like passwords i would say are you in- a lot less secure because obviously you can put forth a pin code um, you know someone can look over your shoulder and see what your pin is uh, you know maybe somebody might write down their pin and it gets breached that way uh, so from a, you know pure security standpoint uh, things like face ID and you know touch ID uh, this is an improvement, right? But at the same time, uh, you know, if you're using something like a Face ID or Touch ID, um, you are also contributing uh, in some ways, perhaps, uh, to a database uh, of you know all your fingerprints and your you know, uh, you know and also your face, right? Uh, so. You, know, you do give up some privacy probably um, by using technologies uh, like Face ID and Touch ID, um, but the security benefits so uh, it's really you know, hard to predict if this is overall net positive Well, uh, um, a- yeah. a-
2: a- Apple say, don't they, Apple say um, and we have to take them at their, at their word on this, that at least on their devices that uh, your fingerprint is stored in the secure enclave and never actually leaves your device, it is then transferred uh, transformed into a token, which is um, uh, sent to Apple, I think. And so when you put your, uh, you know, when you use Touch ID, your fingerprint is matched to the uh, to the print in the secure enclave of your device. And then that says that matches and the token is then Sent to Apple, yeah. Uh, and now, you know, we have to take them at their at
3: both value. That, but of course, we can't necessarily say the same about any other device. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I and I think you know that would be a good implementation. Uh, so you know, um, you know, so overall, you know, we think that these technologies do improve uh, security because everybody knows PIN codes are not secure, right? Um, but uh, you know, and Apple, hopefully, you know, we hope implements it properly. Uh, but there's probably other companies who are doing. You know, uh, fingerprint and face recognition um, who may not be exercising the same care. Uh, So there's always downsides to, you know.
2: There's um, downtown to to everything. Um, But as we were. You've probably seen it. Of course, the grey shift grey key phone cracking box came to light during the week. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. It's uh, yeah. an, yes. It's an item sold to uh, something we were talking about last uh, weekend on the, on the show, and it's a device which it apparently can break the codes on on an iPhone, any iPhone. Now, they they say that they can break a four-digit pin in about two hours uh, and a six-digit six pin in about three days. And as I said, then they've not got much hope of breaking mine because I've got a 12-character pin, and by um, my mathematics isn't fantastic. What, but zero, I zero,
1: zero, zero 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 uh, zero, no, zero 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 one two three four
2: Even if it was, Mark, the thing is, the number of characters increases the entropy immensely. And you're actually better, you know, the current advice, and I think uh, Andy will agree with this, the current advice is now, you're better to have Mary Mary had a lamb, it's fleece was white as snow, is actually better than, you know, HP 2-134, because the longer, the better. The more characters, the more, you know, the longer, the better. Because the grey key, if it takes three days to crack, you know, six six digits and it has to know their digit by the way if you increase that to 12 characters by well there's at least uh what do they say at least 105 keys and that's before you start worrying about accented characters i think you end up with a figure about 105 to the power of 105 multiplied by oh it's 100 i don't know it's it's a it's a a silly number take it from me I forget my binomial theorem now. It's a long time since I studied it, but it's a, it's a very big number.
1: Well, you know what? I think we've covered quite a lot in the hour that we've got allotted for you, uh, Andy. So thank you very much for coming on. Are there any sort of um, up and coming things that we need to look out for in either Proton Mail, Proton Bridge, or Proton VPN that you want to sort of gently tease as a coming soon for your range?
3: Um, Well, you know, we mentioned earlier the uh, PGP um, integration that uh, we're going to do that will allow us to be interoperable with any PGP uh, email system in the world. Um, That's going to be, I think, a major step. Uh, And with that release, uh, we've also got some uh, very, very cool security features that are coming. Uh, So we're definitely looking forward to getting that released out there uh, to the world. Um, And it'll be exciting to talk about that. Uh, I think it will be out in probably two months' time. Uh, So, you know, um, keep your eyes peeled for that. Awesome, awesome.
1: So obviously, if people want to get a hold of you, they can do. They can via. No, it's protonvpn dot com, protonmail dot com. Am I missing any others?
3: Uh, no, for now it's just uh, those two. But uh, we definitely are uh, planning to have you know other proton products in the future. But you can um you can reach out to proton on on Twitter, can't you? Because I know you you have a Twitter. Yes, yes, we do. And- I- and we're quite active there, uh, so it's uh, it's it's a good way to reach us.
1: Oh, and on on a side note, when I was uh, using one of the early Safari technology preview builds, and I was setting up my Proton Mail account, uh, I had a bit of a problem, and I sent a ticket in, and a chap there, or person there, or lady there called Goran replied. Pretty much instantaneously. And this was late at night for me. Uh, and basically said, ah, yep, do this, do this. Uh, and it worked. Uh, and I was just absolutely blown away by how quick the support was. Oh, I, yeah. I really, really wasn't um, expecting that. And you can't pay me to say anything about good support. Because if you ever want to know my feelings on support, number one, I work in IT supporting users. And number two, I've yet to have go into an Apple store and have a good experience.
2: <laughs> well, I can, I can, uh, I can back you up on that, Mark. You know, when I discovered Proton Mail, I didn't have any trouble with Proton Mail. But when I first uh, heard about Proton VPN and installed it, I did have a problem, and I sent a ticket in. And like you, within about an hour, I think somebody was mailing me back with the hints and tips and I'd misread the it's my fault I'd completely misread the instructions and had not made sure to install the profile for a free server Uh, but also since then Uh, possibly, I'm not saying it's part of my feedback, but possibly a lot of people's, the free servers are now obviously labelled as free, aren't they, Andy? They used to just be tagged.
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, um, as we kind of extended, we've learned a lot about, you know, how to label the servers, you know, how to do the things to make it more user friendly, Um, we definitely improved on that front and, you know, there's a lot of confusion about the free servers and I think we've gotten to a place where it's much more clear and understood now.
2: Yeah, it's definitely because they, they, they used to to have to pick the free server, and there was a list, and it told you what the serv which servers were free. Whereas now they're actually marked as. You know, Netherlands free server one and US free server one, and so on, which makes life a lot easier for for beginners for, for sure.
1: If I can install it, then pretty much anyone can install it. It, it literally, it literally just takes a you know a little bit of time. Just sort of you know wrap your head around it. You have got to log into uh, get make sure you have got your usernames and passwords there, uh, and away you go.
2: Yep, yeah, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, and uh, now TunnelBear has. Um, until I'm convinced that Tunnel bear is still the Tunnel Bear it was, uh, I'm afraid they're on my dubious list and Proton VPN has been elevated to my definite number one. There you go.
1: And uh, so every Friday night, Andy, I know this will make you help you sleep at night, that every Friday night while I'm in the pub, you know that I'm safe and sound because I'm using tunnel VPN.
2: So <laughs> Proton VPN. Oh, so,
1: oh blimey. Sorry, there, there's a cross <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, there's a spin-off oh, group.
1: It, uh, that's that's the affiliate branch of Proton VPN. Oh Jesus, <laughs> I'm gonna have to put that in the edit.
2: There's an edit point for you, mate. Oh well, never mind. There you go. You got to have a laugh, haven't you? Uh,
1: the Doctor Andy N. We won't keep you very much longer. Thank you very much for joining us. I do believe the offer. Is 20% off at the moment if you sign up for an annual subscription. Is that valid to everyone or is that just for paid users of Proton Mail?
3: Um, that's actually valid for uh, everyone, uh, and in fact, if you're a paid user of both uh, Proton VPN and Proton Mail, uh, you actually get an additional, you know, twenty percent off uh, on both. So not just VPN, but also your mail subscription uh, is is discounted by the same twenty uh, percent. Uh, so you know, uh, we definitely uh, do have that there because you know a lot of these um, users are uh, the ones that have been supporting the company. We don't have any advertisements, right? So all the funding uh, comes from the community. Uh, and you know, this is kind of our way to, you know, um, a little bit to, you know, thank the people that have been supporting us all these years.
2: Excellent. Excellent. And we will continue to tell
3: the world how good we think the proton service is. Won't we, uh, excellent. So uh, thank you very much. And it was a pleasure to be on the show. Dr. Andy Yen from Proton Mail,
1: from Proton VPN and Proton Bridge, thank you very much for joining us.
2: And I'd just like to add my own special thank you to Dr. Andy Yen from Proton for joining us. And now to finish the show, we'll go over to Nemo's Hardware Store. Take it away, John.
0: Every week here at Nemo's Hardware Store, we teach a workshop for intermediate-level iPad and iPhone students, and everybody needs to power up their equipment. MacAlley has the solution. The product name is Trihub, T-R-I-H-U-B, Trihub 9. There's two versions of it. There's the regular Trihub 9 and the UC Trihub 9. We will have the links to both of these products on our show notes at this week's episode of the Essential Apple Podcast. These are attractive, triangular shaped hubs and at one end is a power port and then adjacent to that is a usb 3.1 port the power port will be universal for your country and your power supply and you can get a different type of data transfer port depending on what you're going to be using for instance if you have a new macbook or a macbook pro that uses USB-C, get the USB-C version of the Trihub, which is called the UC Trihub 9. And if you have a conventional USB port, like a USB 3 port, a flat USB port, then you get the regular Trihub 9. I'm sorry it's confusing, but when you go to the website, it will all make sense. There are nine ports in there. That's where the number nine comes from. Very good pictures and description on the McAlley website. And here's what they say. It's a nine port USB hub charger that has seven data transfer and two charging ports. Of the seven data transfer ports, three are USB 3, four are USB 2, and two are USB charging ports. And there's a mixture of USB C, USB 2, USB 3, and regular flat USB charging. Again, it sounds weird when you see the pictures and you have the product in your hand you'll be very impressed these are $90 each in the US and in my studio they are well worth it i have one of each here so the USB-C crowd can be charged up like crazy and one for the regular USB crowd and if i do not and as they say on here the last cool feature of TriHub 9 is that it can be used as a standalone 6-port USB charger by only connecting the power adapter, which is a 12-volt, 4-amp power adapter. So Macally once again, has innovated, done a really nice job providing for our power distribution and data transfer needs with the TriHub 9, the USB-C version and the regular USB version. Free shipping, orders over $75, so this would definitely qualify. Second product is from last week. It's returning. It's the IK Multimedia iRig Mic HD2. I listened to the recording that we did last week, and I realized I was popping my peas a little bit. So I used Simon's trick, and I got an old sock, and I put it over the top. So we will listen to that after we finish recording. So let's see if that improves it. The thing that I did not know last week that I just learned by looking at the inside page of the printed manual, that there's a free download. The Pro Bundle for iRig Recorder, which is the Mic Pack for Vocalive iOS, Mic Room for Mac or PC or iOS, T-Rack S Classic, and Ableton Live 9 Lite for Mac or PC. So they provide all of your audio engineering software and recording software with a free download using a QR code or a web address that is given inside the printed manual for the IK Multimedia I rig Mic HD2. I was pleased with the sound from last week. This is definitely a fine product, and the cost in the U.S., again, is $130. Let's wrap up today with a high-end speaker system. It's a pair of left-right stereo speakers from our good friends at AudioEngineUSA.com. A-U-D-I-O-E-N-G-I-N-E-U-S-A.com. It's a new version of their mighty, powerful A5 Plus Powered speakers audiophile quality for $400 you can get it all black and all white or for a little bit more money you can get an attractive wood finish go to the website that we have the link for here on essential apple for a nice video and then study the pictures and the descriptions these have arrived they're very impressive very powerful really crisp muscular sound there's no front grill so if you don't like seeing the exposed speakers forget it But if you like that more geeky look, the studio speaker look, there's nothing coming between you and your sound. It's full analog with the advantage of having an outstanding Bluetooth capability. So we'll be reporting on these at MyMac.com. And thank you to Audio Engine for providing for our evaluation. So once again, if you need more than one power supply or charging port or data transfer port, get the 9-port USB hub and charger from McAlley, the Trihub 9. If you're looking for a good studio quality microphone, the IK Multimedia, the iRig Mic HD2, and if you like your music powerful and really robust and massively analog and fiercely accurate, the new A5 Plus 2018 version of the powered, wired or wireless Bluetooth speaker from Audio Engine USA. Back next week.
2: As ever, this show is part of the excellent MyMac podcasting network, where you can find such shows as Bart Shots Let's Talk, you can find Guy and Gaz on the MyMac show, Tim and David with the Tech Fan Show, there's the Nintendo Club podcast, there is the Three Geeky Ladies, the geekiest show ever, and I have no doubt, some others too.
0: Hi, I'm Jake Adams. And I'm Peter Searle. And together, we are... NANOBITES! A brand new channel with the express purpose of bringing fun and variety to your
1: computer... TV... Smartphone...
2: Or anywhere else! We've been making content in different forms on this site for years now. But we
1: figured
0: now was as good
2: a time as any
1: to really knuckle in and do something a bit more focused. But Jake?
3: Yeah, Pete? What kind of videos can you expect to watch here? On this channel, you can find lots of things like comedy, horror, parody, drama,
0: and even action.
3: Whoa, now that's some fun stuff you got
2: going on there. That's right, Jake. And we have all of that and more. So come on in and
0: take a look. I'm Jake. And I'm Peter. And together, we are Nanobytes. Forget it. Yeah, that's good. I don't. I don't.
2: Be the Essential Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.